You are listening to The Mend Podcast. I'm Joe Roeder, and I spend my life on the water and in the field. As a fly fishing guide and outfitter, I have spent decades personally honing my skills and helping other people improve theirs. My goal is to help listeners learn from my mistakes and successes. This podcast is brought to you by Red's Fly Shop, the best place to get outfitted for your next big adventure. The podcast is back up, fresh sound, and a more consistent format for you guys so I can do this regularly and share what's going on. A couple of changes the podcast are going to be, I'm going to share a little bit more about what's going on uh, with my recreation in addition to my job, which is fly fishing and outfitting, Um, but also I'm an absolutely avid big game hunter. I have big game hunted before I fly fished as a kid. And so I do a lot of that in the fall, and uh, I'll be sharing a little bit of that. If you're interested, I'm starting to share just a few little things here and there on another Instagram profile. It's at Reds Hunting, and uh, if you don't follow us on Instagram currently, I'm guessing you do. If you're into podcasts, most of you probably use Instagram. We have an at Reds Fly Shop account, and then at Reds Hunting I'm just starting to share a few little things. We'll I'll roll out a lot more probably over the next six months to a year. Uh, but when I'm not fly fishing, I'm spending a lot of time uh, pursuing big game. I've got great my life. Uh, I've lived a very blessed life to be able to fly fish my brains out as a job. And uh, when I can peel time off from that, uh, I've been fortunate to have a wife who is very understanding of this passion I have for big game hunting too. So that'll be a little change to the podcast. I'm also going to give some updates, uh, kind of share a fishing story from uh, this past week, and then I'll jump into some tips uh, later in the podcast. So as far as news, it reads things going on uh, seasonally that I want to share with you. One thing we have going, if you if you don't participate in the monthly rod giveaway that we do, you really should do that. Uh, your odds are great on winning that. We don't have a bazillion competitors, especially ones that follow the instructions properly. It seems like every month we choose a winner and we we look at the, the comments or how they entered the particular giveaway. And it's like, seriously, you didn't follow the, the instructions. It would have been so easy. And uh, we end up going to the next, the next. And I think only Oh, well, there's a couple hundred entries uh, each month, but I bet when you boil them down to, you know, people actually entered the comments right, and it's sort of a scavenger hunt for flies on our website. So we want people, if they're going to enter the giveaway, to the, the idea is jump over to our online store and, like, see what we're doing there. I mean, our fly selection's incredible, and so part of it is just getting the right flies listed in comments, whether that's on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook or you know, you're entering by placing an order with us. There's, you can enter all those different ways and increase your odds. But the idea is that you got to follow the instructions, right? So if you don't do that, get in it. We're giving away a Winston Super 10, 10 foot four weight rod. Absolutely kick-ass rod, not a Euro rod, not a good rod for Euro. In my opinion, it has a very strong tip and midsection, like Better for heavy lifting, um, really having good aggressive hook sets on slack line drifts like indicator drifts. 
It also uh, sends streamers and, and sync tips like you wouldn't believe. Even that four weight uh, will just absolutely launch a sync tip. So that rod is all about kind of that bigger water fishing with indicators, mending line, feeding line, big roll casts, casting streamers. You can even set up a little single spay like Skagit system on it. We're giving that rod away in November. So if you just go to our online store, right on that first page when you land there, you can enter to win. Uh, and then you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, uh, YouTube, and get in that way. But that's the rod we're giving away from November. It's absolutely killer rod, uh, especially if you find yourself fishing on big water with streamers and nymphs. Get in that. Uh, the other thing we have is a, like a bug of the month. That's uh, for November. No matter where you're fishing, I think a crawfish pattern in November is an absolutely great way to go. Those fish are laying uh, at or near the bottom for most of the month, with the exception of a few mayfly hatches and midge hatches, you know, different places. But when those fish are spending time right on the floor, even whether it's in, in a lake uh, or in a river, they're going to they're gonna have direct proximity to crayfish, and those crayfish are best fish right along the bottom of that mini craw from Fulling Mill. And it's called Joe's Mini Craw, but it's not named after me. I wish I could tell you it was. Um, I like tying, but never really had a, an interest in in designing flies for mass production. But uh, the, the guy who tied it, Joe Goodspeed, um, is just a su- super serious angler. Uh, and man, he tied that fly. And first time I saw it, I was like, I got to give this thing a try. And I went out and caught some absolutely slab rainbows out here, uh, on our home river. But since then I've used it for, uh, largemouth bass that are up on spawning beds where they're very picky and, uh, they kind of know what's fake and what's not. But I have twitched that little mini craw across spawning beds for big largemouth. And, uh, and caught largemouth that wouldn't take anything else, uh, even the most obnoxious looking, you know, types of flies and whatnot they wouldn't take. But as soon as I threw that mini craw over them, it was just so trusting and realistic that they, uh, they just grab it. Smallmouth and then uh, trout in lakes. Uh, I've caught a fair amount of trout in lakes uh, in that or on that crayfish as well. So Super good fly, but great in the cold season, in my opinion. That's our bug of the month. They're on sale a little bit. And uh, if you go to our, our homepage, you can just direct link over to that uh, uh, as well. So a couple of other things, like for the spring, I'll mention this on future podcasts between now and then, but we are going to be doing what we're calling the Pacific Northwest Trout Spay Clave on March 25th this upcoming year. And it's going to be, you know, essentially, you know, like a, a, a camp uh, for, it's like a customer appreciation clinic camp clave uh, where we're going to be there. Simon Gosworth from Rio Products. Uh, Simon's a friend of mine and he has agreed to drive up and, uh, and host one of the, the public seminars. I'm sure George Cook will be there uh, and other industry reps and pros um, will be there to help help us put on just a really good series of clinics that day. And that's going to be March 25th. Just just get your calendar out. I don't have a web page or landing page up for it right now, but throw that. get your phone out and throw that in your calendar uh, to come to Reds. That would be a great time to come up here. The The spay fishing can be good in March, but that's also during our Squalla Stonefly Hatch. So it's a, if you're from the outside the area, you want to come up and like, get some killer spay instruction, see Reds, visit the Yakima Canyon, 
it's a great time to come up uh, in general. It'll be a great excuse to visit. So uh, that's March 25th. Um, as far as other stuff going on, we've got a bunch of big trips coming up. Uh, you should be, if, if a saltwater trip is on the horizon for you, you should be looking at getting that book now. Um, you know, not everybody has it in the budget, um, to do a saltwater trip. Uh, it's a big, it's a, it's a big investment. You've got airfare, you've got your lodge fees, you've got some gratuities. You're probably going to buy a little gear. I should do a whole separate podcast on just kind of outlining, you know, what the anticipated cost should be for some of these trips. But if you're thinking about planning one of those, you're curious about it, you know, reach out to me with questions. Um, my email's essentially public. It's joe at redsflyshop.com. And ask me questions about that. But we have a bunch of trips coming up um, to Belize for permit, permit tarpon combo, uh, Ascension Bay. You can catch everything. I'm going to Patagonia twice this year. Uh, I still have a single angler spot in March for somebody who wants to just come as a single and fish in the single angler pool of guests. Um, I'm putting the trip together. It's going to be awesome. Uh, my wife and a few other couples are going, but it's not like a couple's trip, uh, but it's just a mixed group. And that would be a good one to jump into if you're dying to fish Patagonia, you don't want to book it randomly into some lodge alone. Join that join that hosted trip in March. Uh, I, I absolutely love Patagonia. I've done a couple of podcasts about it in the past. So we have those trips going. Christmas Island is set to reopen. So if you've heard of it, you're thinking about it, we still have space on our hosted trips. Reopening after three years of closure due to the pandemic. I can only imagine the fishing is going to be absolutely killer. Um, fishing should be great. I mean, those fish haven't been thrown at in three years. I have to imagine that um, some of those wily old bonefish and, and trevally have been up feeding completely unmolested on the flats and the first you know several months of that reopening those fish are going to be very aggressive um i have to imagine it's going to be good the uh the the only hang-up is going to be i'm not sure how the lodges um you know in the hospitality end of things are going to be able to recover from being closed just staffing and systems and uh things like laundry and food and beverage and all that kind of stuff um boat maintenance and all that. So it should be kind of a an adventure. We're, we're anxious to see those lodges and those guides get operating again, you know, hopefully in a safe fashion after the pandemic. But it's going to be a little adventurous. I think it's going to be like fishing Christmas Island in the 80s, uh, where you just kind of, you didn't know exactly what you're going to get. Uh, you had a guide that would get you to the flat, but I think independent or anglers that appreciate kind of that wild independence of being on the flat, spotting their own fish, making some of their own decisions, carrying their own rods. I think that the that unique part of that Christmas Island adventure is going to be back again. So um, lots of big trips coming up. Um, other things going. So if you go over to the, our Reds hunting Instagram, I've been moose hunting uh, quite a bit. So I'll just dabble and start dabbling the hunting thing, just part of the intro. But uh, it took me 24 years to get a Washington State moose tag for Shiras moose. So 24 years since I was 17 or 18 years old. Uh, this 24th year I've applied. I've been putting in since I was a teenager and I finally got a moose tag this year. And uh, it's for one of the tougher units in the state, but it also has potential for enormous Shiras moose. So 
I'm heading back up next week to get after it. I've spent eight days up there since October 1st and uh, passed on several bulls. You can see a couple of them on Instagram, a couple of them with my bow. And um, I somewhat passed, somewhat was hesitant. I found a really big bull in a marsh uh, one morning. And it was really low light, and uh, we were we were in this marsh. It's kind of our honey hole, and beautiful. Um, one of the locals kind of knew where we were hunting. It's a hiking spot, kind of off grid. And I think his words were, "Oh yeah, that spot." He's like, "Oh yeah, that looks like you should be in a field and stream catalog there or calendar there." And that's exactly what it looks like. Just so picturesque. But we hiked into this spot. Before daylight, we're sitting on this big marsh, kind of this meadow with a lake, and it's it's about 350 yards to one end of it. It's literally like the only place you can see that far in this whole this whole unit. Um, basically, it's not designated wilderness with a capital W, but it's wilderness with a lowercase w, I'd say. Lots of wolves, bears, uh, moose, just kind of that Northwoods habitat near the Canadian border here in north, northeast, north-central Washington, uh, and it's in the Kettle Mountain Range. I'll just be public with what unit I drew, but it's in the Kettles, and the Kettles are just crazy wild. And uh, as it got light, I just couldn't believe it, man. I'm like, there's a moose across the the marsh there, and I'm like looking at it, and this is a once-in-a-lifetime tag, and a guy shot the world record Shiras moose in this unit three years ago, so I mean, I have no aspirations of shooting a world record, but I'd kind of like to get a mature bull. And as that, as it got light, I could see it was a pretty decent bull. And uh, I, get, I could see it was a decent bull, but I was like, man, pulling the trigger on a tag that took you 24 years to get, you're really just enjoying, you know, being on that hunt and hunting moose. And I'm with my best, my best hunting pal, Connor. And uh, I'm just like, man, I want to shoot right now. I want to pull this trigger, but I need to make sure that this bull is of the caliber that I'm going to be just absolutely stoked about um, when I leave. And, uh, I was looking at him, sizing him up. Um, it was definitely in the low forties for, for width. It wasn't a super wide bull. And, uh, but Shiras don't typically get, you know, like a 50 plus inch Shiras moose is pretty big, but as soon as he put his nose down and I could see the height of the paddles on this bull, I was just like, Oh my gosh. I'm like, I absolutely want that bull. I was just blown away by how tall the paddles were on this thing. Just big, mature bull. Some good tine length, like on his fourth points. And as soon as he put his nose down, I knew I wanted to take him. But um, he turned. He never knew we were there or anything like that. And we expected him to spend all morning, maybe all day in this marsh. And it was maybe five or ten minutes into, into good shooting light. And now I'm on the gun, and uh, he's quartering on, and I don't really want to take a quartering to me shot. Like, on a, on a moose like that, you really want that full broadside look. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, it doesn't really matter what kind of rifle you're shooting, but people are always going to ask. I'm shooting a 300 short mag, uh, 300 Winchester short mag that I've had forever. Um, the gun's been reborn a couple of times. Uh, bought it about... 15, no, more than that, about 20 years ago when my wife and I were dead broke. And so it was a big purchase. And uh, since I've upgraded some things on it, but I'm sentimental about that kind of stuff. But uh, I didn't want to take that quartering on shot. Just wanted that perfect broadside look. And uh, when he turned to leave, well, he didn't, I didn't think he was turning to leave. But as he turned and got broadside, he just started to stride towards the edge of that marsh. 
And I've got the crosshairs on him, and a couple of times he just paused for just a moment, you know, like a half a second, I started to tension up on trigger. And the shot was like 245 yards, I think it was, and he just walked right to the edge of that marsh, didn't stop for more than one second, walked right out of the marsh and just walked out of the marsh and away from us. And in retrospect, we should have grunted, called at him, done something to try to get him to come back in the marsh as though we were a cow or another moose. But there was a, there's another marsh connected to this one that's that's also pretty significant. And uh, we had seen a bull in there two days prior, a small bull that I'd passed on. And I, I transitioned after that first couple of days of hunting with my bow to hunting with my rifle. Um, so I got an opportunity to shoot bulls with my bow, didn't, and said, okay, I could have shot with my bow. Now I just, I really want to focus on getting more mature bull with my rifle. So that bull walked away from me into in toward that other marsh. We hurried over there thinking, oh, he's going to spend all day in that marsh. You know, it's not a problem. We're going to get up there. We're going to be very patient. And we, we, we TP creed up into that other marsh. And that bull had just, when it got daylight, he didn't see cows in the first marsh. He got to the second marsh, didn't see a cow uh, in that marsh, and just trucked out of there. Uh, that early October time frame is like the peak of the moose rut which is the breeding season, and so they are just cruising for cows. So that bull walked out of my life forever, um, proceeded to hunt another five days, never saw or heard a moose in five days after that. I swapped out my hunting buddy, uh, Connor, for my youngest son, Jacob, and we hit it hard. Uh, we, cal- we called for moose. We called in a wolf to about six yards uh, with my my 13-year-old son, that was pretty intense. That'll be a very colorful lifetime memory. And uh, didn't didn't see another moose, didn't hear another moose for five days uh, after that. So it's a pretty long season. I'm going to head back up Sunday, and uh, I'll, I'll touch base on the podcast, not all about hunting. But uh, that's taking up a lot of my time right now. So I'm doing some fishing, but haven't been able to get steelhead fishing yet. I've been putting uh, a fair amount of time into that moose hunt and then snuck out for a couple of days of deer hunting uh, with my older son. Um, Totally struck out and got our butts handed to us on mule deer in the high cascades. Uh, But I am sharing some older stuff on that Instagram page, so you can check that out. Uh, We're going to do a couple of like just one question and answer uh, real quick. I I threw a little Instagram teaser out yesterday just asking for some question answer. And I just, it was short notice, but I only got one response. But uh, when I when I throw those Q&A offers out there, make sure you guys hit those pretty quick because I will get to them. But uh, Nathan Saunders uh, asked, why are fiberglass rods seemingly so popular on small creeks? And what are the advantages uh, to that? So for the most part, fiberglass rods, there's like two attributes of them that make me want to fish them and other folks uh, that maybe have a couple of options, maybe you have a couple of rods or you you just have a desire to fish fiberglass because you've had some experience with it. And one, just that deep flexibility is fun to cast, just super bendy. They bend all the way through the butt. You really have to slow down. They're not quite bamboo, but you you feel like you you're casting you know 50 years ago uh you're casting a rod from a real uh you know just a real classic action there's something fun about that uh when i learned to fly cast the first rod i ever cast was bamboo uh like a lot of folks and 
I remember that my friend Tommy Henley's grandpa was the only one that could make that rod work. <laughs> and that was how we thought of it. Like, man, yeah, only Grandpa George could make that thing work. And uh, we couldn't make that thing work. Couldn't cast a bamboo rod. We were kids, man. We were so fast and impatient whipping that thing around. And even all these years later, I can remember trying to cast like bamboo rods. My uncle Sid Burns uh, had a bamboo rod, same thing. Only Uncle Sid could make that thing work. And so when I cast or fiberglass rods, it really harkens up a lot of memories from when I was first learning to cast. Like there's this, there's just this joy factor of casting something from 50 years ago, an action that 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 only existed, you know, decades and decades and decades ago. Two is glass is really durable. So when it comes to like little two and three weight rods, even four weight rods, glass, if you're going to drag it around through the brush, you're going to throw it up on the dash of your pickup. You're, it's going to get banged around. It's going to go on the side of a backpack. You're going to snag up a lot in alder brush and other things like that. Glass tends to be more durable than graphite. Graphite does tend to splinter and crack and break and can be a little bit more fragile especially on like circumstances where um, maybe you're snagged in a tree and you're trying to get it out of there and you just throw like a vibration down that tip that is the rod really wasn't engineered or designed to absorb. Um, graphite can be pretty fragile. So the durability of glass is a big factor as well. So that's your answer. Durability and just that joy factor and fun factor. When it comes to all out making an accurate cast at sub 30 feet where I have to hit pie plate size spots. I'm taking graphite all day from a raw performance standpoint. So if you're fishing a creek where you really need to hit spots, you really need to fire it up under brush, uh, then I'm going graphite absolutely all the time. So it's a, it's a very reasonable question. Hey, the other thing I want to I want to touch on when it comes to just uh, before I go into kind of a story about fishing last week is if you have not if you don't have a good GPS navigation app on your phone, like a base map, Onyx, Go Hunt, even Gaia, uh, I would get one. I, I use all of them. Well, I don't use Go Hunt. I, there was kind of some quirky things that let me down a little bit there, but I use Onyx and base map all the time for both hunting and my fly fishing. But I've been doing some some seminars occasionally for like fly fishing clubs and whatnot, like Zoom Zoom based seminars and. Just blowing people's minds with how you can use base map to pre-scout, e-scout, and then use it to navigate either floating, driving, or waiting once you're on the ground. Um, so I would jump on that and get that base map app if you haven't. If that's totally new to you and you haven't seen that, play around with it. It's primarily a hunter's tool, but fly fishermen are just silly to not be using um, some type of app like that. So I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna tell you just a little story about uh, fishing last week and some experiences that I had, some things that I learned uh, wade fishing uh, on my own while with a fishing partner, and just share you some share with you some lessons learned from fishing last week. Last week I went out wade fishing with a fellow named Han that I met uh, in our. 25 on the fly, you know, scavenger hunt slash fly fishing uh, events we've done here in years past at Reds. And super, super nice guy. And he is participating or helping set up kind of some mini fly fishing competitions 
and the the venue here in the Yakima Canyon just makes sense. So I was giving Han a little bit of help just establishing where this might take place in the beats. I'm not the organizer of the competition, just trying to be helpful and uh, go out, do a little bit of wade fishing with him, establish some beats or some sections that this competition could take place. So we're we're going out fishing, and it's great for me. Uh, we we considered what we call a fish along, uh, although I, I wasn't really coaching Han at all. He's a very capable angler, and he didn't really ask for coaching. He just wanted me to go help establish these beats. So I'm just basically fishing. I got a free pass to go out and go wade fishing for the day, and I was fishing my Beulah G2 Platinum 10 foot 8 inch three weight. It's a Euro rod, but it does a little bit of everything. And I was fishing that uh, setup. And our job was to go do some wade fishing, you know, within, you know, areas that are closely accessed by the highway. And we could fish a particular couple hundred yards for a while and just make sure that, okay, if we were to do a competition, this would be like an equitable section or beat of water for said competition. So I started out running uh, like a large pheasant tail, a a CDC soft tackle jig head pheasant tail as my bottom fly. And I was going to Euro nymph like in the traditional fashion. I enjoy doing that on foot. I frankly, for the most part, when I'm waiting, I enjoy tight line nymphing more than strike indicator fishing. I still like indicators, no problem with indicators, but my indicators will generally be yarn anymore. Um, I'll run like, you know, some type of light yarn in New Zealand. I, I like more delicate rigs. I don't, I'm not a big bobber angler. I, I use them. I'm not, not against them. Or I don't dislike those who do use them. And no, no uh, edge there. I just prefer lighter, more delicate rigs. But the thing about the Euro nymphing is it's a tight line setup. I get to feel the grabs. It's tight. It's clean. There's a lot of control. It's not just because I'm catching more trout. I'm not positive that I am catching more trout. Uh, I would have to have a little contest or something to know that. But point is, I'm I enjoy that from a wade fisherman standpoint. I find it much more uh, enjoyable and peaceful, and I'm just instantly connected to the fish when they bite. My hook sets, my hookups are so clean. There's nothing messy about them when I do that. So here I am. I'm gonna go wade fish a couple of different pieces of water. And uh, I've got this two nymph set up. I'm running uh, 5x fluoro, I believe. Actually, I think I'm running five and a half x. I know that sounds ridiculous to have half x. That's just what I happen to have. Uh, five and a half x fluoro, and I'm running that all the way down to my pheasant tail. And then uh, above that, I switched through a couple of different type of little betis nymphs and fished up my first beat. And was getting a lot of really light grabs, a lot of light takes, and didn't really know what to make of it. It turns out I was I was getting pestered by some salmon smolt that were in there. I finally hooked a couple of them, and they're just like these three to five inch juvenile salmon fry, Chinook fry. And once I encountered that, I'm like, okay, I got to start fishing a little bit faster, heavier water. Moved out a little bit, started fishing faster, heavier water. Finally got into a couple of rainbows, nothing real big or spectacular, but I got into them on this little tiny, tiny beta snipf called a Bubble Up May. And in late October when I was fishing, that's the end of the season. Um, on most of these rivers, for us, we're fishing rainbows, so we don't have like a 
a spawn or pre-spawn bite or aggressiveness that that often accompanies uh, waters that have brown trout in them. So these these rainbows, they're picky. It's the end of this fishing season. Essentially, they've had a full summer's education, full quarter of you know fly one fly selection, one hundred one, two hundred one, three hundred one, and then four hundred one. Uh, by the time we get to the end of the season, these trout are smart. So I'm fishing that little tiny bubble up May. I get into a couple of fish. I'm like, okay, I'm feeling pretty good. I go check in with Han. He was working the beat upstream. We compare notes. Um, we we say, okay, this, this spot's going to work. We go to the next spot. And at the next spot, what I found was when I, when I go from spot to spot and the depth and the speed changes... When I'm tight line nymphing like that, and this could be true for indicator fishing too, and we're just going to keep this topic, the point of discussion on nymph fishing because just it is the season. There's not a lot of dry fly fishing out there most anywhere uh, in November. Is balance of your rig, like fly weight, specifically fly weight for Euro nymphing and making sure that you can get to the bottom, but your fly is still mobile enough to move drift and present along the bottom is really key and I found myself changing flies a lot in not so much that first spot but the next spot I went to the next beat I went to check out I ended up switching to a um, just a a, like a squirmy wormy type pattern a a wiggly worm by foaming mill just because I like I'm familiar with that bead size the weight of that that worm and I ended up fishing that worm and hooking a really big fish on that worm and it was specifically because I changed weights not patterns I just looked at my box and I said hey I know that bug I need that that bead size and just changing your anchor fly can really change how your other fly presents as well so if you're fishing a two fly rig and like I said I don't care if it's on an indicator or a tight line rig just changing one of the flies and the weight of that fly will help it present a lot differently. But it's something I was doing just out of instinct. But then when I thought about it later after chit-chatting with Han about what I was using, I was changing my flies not based on pattern, but based on weight and buoyancy and kind of how they were moving through the riffles. And it's really quick to just change a single fly. It's much more difficult when you're going to change you know, both flies and maybe have to retie any junction knots or anything like that. So hooked a really big fish on that worm, uh, ended up losing it, man. It ran all the way to my backing. I have not hooked uh, I have not hooked a big powerful fish like that on the yak in a while. So it was pretty cool. Um, we do get a few steelhead this time of year. So I was a little suspicious that I'd actually tied into a steelhead and uh, it took off. It may just kick my butt. It, it ran out to my backing, turned around, ran back upstream at me just tearing line you know where I get that big bow a line where it's running up and across across for me I finally got it into about 30 feet and uh it ended up just coming unpinned uh didn't break it off but just came unhooked but as we transitioned from that spot to the next spot what ended up happening was we ended up starting to get a fair amount of wind and wind is not like a cat a lot of people struggle casting in the wind and you really just you need to work on your casting and having an understanding of the fly cast not just going out and doing a whole bunch of mediocre reps in your yard like really understanding what makes the rod load and shoot and I'm gonna try to do more like kind of group clinics this next year um 
where I, I can just speak to a group and demonstrate to a group of, say, 30 or 40 people and just explain these things because you, you folks are so smart. You can understand these things, but it's like we put a fly rod in people's hands and it just dumbs them down. Um, they just they turn into a kid again and start just whipping that thing around. And it's really hard to instruct while people are casting, but it's very easy for people to digest concepts when they're not casting. I find people progress like just watching a good demonstration more so often than casting themselves. But anyway, if you're having trouble casting in the wind, fishing in the wind really isn't limited by casting short of like a gale force wind at 30 miles an hour. If it's just 10 or 15 miles an hour, I mean, you should still be able to get your fly there fine. What happens, what's more problematic is the line control. So the line control involved, like especially in Euro or tight line nymphing in the wind is very difficult. Your rod is elevated. You've got that line, you know, basically going from, well, one, you've got the wind blowing on the rod, and then you've got the wind blowing on the line, and you're trying to delicately keep just a very specific amount of tension between the fly and the rod tip. And that's a real fine balance because too much tension and the fly comes, swims up off the bottom, and you're in no man's land, you're not going to catch any fish. Not enough tension, and the fly's either not moving downstream you're not tight to it, you don't have control, and you can often snag bottom. And when I'm Euro-nymphing or tight-line nymphing, I'm, it's rare that I'm snagging bottom. I'll snag bottom a few times a day, but I, if you keep just the right amount of upward tension on the fly, when it does impact a rock or a boulder or something, it swims right over the top of it uh, when you have that tension right. So enter the wind. We're fishing a new spot. The wind starts to blow. We're both having trouble holding these presentations and these drifts. Just really struggling to, to be able to keep that little tiny beta nymph on that I had been doing well right off the bat. Now we're having trouble. So what I did was tactically, again, I switched my bottom fly and I switched up to a small jig streamer. And I did not expect the jig streamer to outfish the squirmy wormy or the the betas nymphs I'd been trying or even that first jig head style pheasant tail with a CDC hackle I'd started with. I just knew that if my fly is going to have tension on it and it's going to be moving or swimming, I would prefer that fly to fish under tension and be swimming, much like a, a you know a sculpin or a streamer. So switched up to a jiggy fry. And my tactic completely changed. I had to deal with that wind. So when I was having gusts of wind, I could just take that that jiggy fry and I could actually cast it out, give it a mend, and just swing it over really shallow boulder piles. Stuff that was too shallow to ever fish with a sink tip or an extremely large streamer. And I caught a couple of nice trout doing that. Uh, When the wind would, would, would soften up a little bit, I would go back to just a traditional dead stick euro presentation where I've got that jiggy fry or my bottom fly my anchor fly if you will really working the bottom tapping the brakes and helping my beta nymph hover just 12 inches off the bottom and I picked up a couple of trout doing that but dynamically when the wind would blow I would switch to a streamer presentation I cast and swung I cast and stripped I casted and just twitched and jigged through the rock piles with that little streamer in caught fish, in all of the above, and I was able to really adapt to the wind where I think Joe Roeder from several years ago 
would have just kept fighting it with, you know, the a stonefly nymph or a pheasant tail or a worm or whatever, and and caught little, very few fish, less than half the fish, but just being mobile and agile and being able to adapt to those winds and fish a setup that I could either be proactive and move it on a tight line and create action or go right back to the dead stick because generally with Euro nymphing, the advantage falls in the favor of dead sticking with smaller nymphs because the presentation is just so good. But being able to switch back and forth between the two is a huge advantage. Han did the same thing. Han got a dandy uh, on a Zertle bug uh, right up to the net and ended up popping off of the net. I got a little video of it, but I don't think I ever shared it on uh, on Insta. But uh, we both ended up making that switch just independently of one another and having good fishing in the wind because we were mobile and started to adapt. So... I'm going to offer a few tips in this next little segment just about being mobile and having a good plan on how you switch back and forth between a nymph system and a streamer system. As we approach the late season or the cold water season, it's important that we really think about having some practicality and how we're going to manage you know, a two-pronged approach. If you're a diehard streamer fisherman and you want to spay fish and you want to take a sink tip line and you're going to streamer fish, great. What I would implore upon you is learn or practice how to fish streamers on a side drift. Really slow them down and learn how to present streamers of varying sizes from little Little streamers are one of the hardest things in my mind to present, like a little number 10 or 12 streamer, because it's so sensitive to anything you do with your rod tip or poor line management, whereas bigger streamers are often a lot more tolerable of those mistakes. But if you're like, hey, I'm I'm a streamer fisherman this time of year, that's what I'm going to do. Great. Just expand your horizons using sinking, sinking tips, sinking leaders, preferably an integrated sink tip line system, but learn how to fish those little itty bitty streamers as well because I think it's going to offer you a huge advantage. Myself personally, I love spay fishing. I think that's great, but I'm not fishing a nymph on a spay rod. Not happening at all whatsoever. I think that's an exercise in misery and frustration. I'd rather have my toenails pulled out than try to nymph with a spay rod. So, I like a two-pronged approach. I'm either, uh, if I'm going to go trout spay fishing, great. I'll go trout spay fishing, love it, have a great time. I'm just going to streamer fish with that. And I tend to like smaller streamers with my spay rods, especially this time of year. I'll throw some big junk too. I got no problem with that. But if I were counseling an angler to just go out and maybe you're like, hey, I'm a weekend warrior. I want to be successful. I want to get some trout in the net. I would implore you to figure out how to to quickly switch back and forth between a streamer and nymphing presentation. Number one piece of advice is just make sure you're good at tying knots. Practice them now, um, not while you're driving, but practice them at home. Practice them, you know, while you have good light and you're sitting at home. And if you if you have trouble tying a double uni knot or a triple surgeons or a non-slip mono loop. Those are the three knots I probably use the most. Practice those in advance. Get good at them so that you can switch out you know, a system really quick. But what I've been doing a lot of is I'm going to do it both this month with our rod giveaway 
and I did it a lot last month. We gave away a Beulah G2 Platinum, um, their 10 foot 8 inch three weight last month, and we're going to give away this Super 10 Winston four weight this month. And you could do it whether you're Euro Nymph or Indicator Nymph, it doesn't matter. Um, you can switch back and forth between those two. And I can take like the Winston Super 10 four weight this month. I'm going to take an integrated sink tip line and I'm going to go out and I am going to streamer fish with that thing. And I'm going to swing streamers on foot. You don't have to spay cast. You can just cast and swing. And I'm going to do some videos on proper swinging technique with streamers with a traditional rod. No skagit casting, no spay, none of that stuff. Just simple, straightforward, good old American Western angling, fishing with a sink tip line and streamer. So that's one strategy that you can use casting, you know, approximately 90 degrees to current, if assuming you're in a river with enough current to swing through, letting that streamer and that sink tip get down and creating the illusion that whatever critter you're fishing is lifting up from the rocks on the bottom and entering kind of this jet stream that is the primary current, you know, mid-column, mid-water column. So we want to create the illusion that that, that bug is coming up off the bottom. I think that's one of the biggest things that, that are missing from people's understanding of streamer fishing and swinging, let's say. Like, it's just creating the illusion for trout that that fly, that critter originated from the bottom. And if you're a trout and you're in that area and you're the first one on scene when that critter swims up out of those rocks or that, that, that substrate, maybe those sticks, whatever it is on the bottom of your stream, trout are going to tackle that if you can create that illusion. So... That's one way to do it. Now, if you're going to do that route and then you're going to switch back to, say, indicator fishing or even tight line nymphing, you're probably going to be considering a spare spool or another reel, okay? You just swap your line out. Don't be afraid of it. Get good at it. Pop your spool out. Pop another reel on. String that rod up. And having a leader that is relatively ready to go is really, really important, Um so that you can make that change uh, very quickly. So swap, being able to switch back and forth is really, really handy. What I like to do is I don't care what kind of nymphing that you do. Uh, I'll share a few more tips on the nymph end of things here in a moment. But I can do it with a traditional sink tip line. I can do it with a little skagit line. Uh, I would implore you to go watch a video on our YouTube channel um, of what I'm doing with a Beulah, um, that, that 3108 Beulah that I've been fishing. Do the same thing with that Winston rod that we're giving away this month. But you could you can switch from a Skagit line or a sink tip pretty easily and fish your way downstream because a streamer that's being swung is best presented when you cast, mend, swing, strip it back in, take a step or two downstream, wash, rinse, repeat. And you essentially are swinging in a very militant, very grid-like fashion. If you imagine... A radar, you know, like on a, a Navy ship where that radar or that sonar swings in a radius, we're going to swing and check for fish. If they're not there, we take a step down because we're going to find them eventually. We're basically just running this very consistent, very grid-like militant approach to stepping downstream. Once you step downstream and we've, we've chosen a piece of water that we suspect there to be fish, if we walk down into it and we get into the pool... Maybe our swing starts to die because there's slow water in the pool. At that time is when you can swap out to your nymph system 
and nymph the primary holding lie, which is going to be the main drop-off or bucket or hole or pool or trench, whatever, tank. There's a whole bunch of names you can call for the deep spot that's followed by a riffle and then a run. In fact, OPST has a great naming system for their sink tips. <laughs> they, they call them riffle, run, bucket, and that's how water descends in that order. The riffle is the shallow stuff up top. The, the run is, is deeper as that riffle starts to give way to the deeper water. We call that a run or that portion of the river a run, and then the bucket is that deep portion within there. Fish are really going to be holding on that run and bucket area uh, in November, December, January, February, even March. Um, so we're going to be fishing much more in that more obvious holding line with the drop-off. So I like to swing my way down, whether I'm using a little Skagit system or a sink tip or another setup that I'll introduce here in a moment. Once I'm in the pool, that's probably when I'm going to switch up and I'm going to go nymph fishing. And I think having the ability to either swap out a spool or a reel or change uh, to a nymphing system once you're in there is really handy to work that pool because fish in the wintertime, let's just call, we'll just say the wintertime, it's, it's still fall technically, but they're, they're potted up and hold up in these more obvious holding areas. And you want to, when you find a spot where you know or suspect there to be fish, there's fish there. You just need to be very surgical and diligent about about digging those fish out of those spots. This run and gun mentality that might work during grasshopper season or the summer season where the fish are much more aggressive and their metabolism is way up, that run and gun technique doesn't work very well during low clear, low clear cold water. So slow everything down. Be surgical about it. Don't be afraid to switch from that streamer strategy to that nymph strategy. Again, if wind is a factor, streamer fishing is generally going to be more effective in the wind. If you're having trouble mending or high sticking, and anytime your line is aerialized, wind can be a factor. Get good at switching back and forth between those two. And your options are really like some type of Skagit or space system for the swinging. I don't really like that setup for... Uh, for stripping flies, if you're if you're in broad, you know, big wide broad pools, I like just a traditional sinking tip line is fine. That works great. Another system that can work really well that's quite easy to, to employ and use, and just try to follow me here. And in uh, in the links in the description of this podcast, I will try to put some links to the gear. Um, no promises. But just using a poly leader, we sell a bunch of them at Reds. There's a Scientific Anglers makes one called a Sonar uh, poly leader. And you can use a Rio Versa leader. But you can take, and if you have a welded loop on the end of your fly line, which I'm guessing most all of you do, you can take your, tr your floating fly line that you're going to use for your indicators and your nymphs, and you can loop to loop a sinking leader on the end of that fly line. Then just tie a piece of tippet on the end of that sinking leader, I like a 10 foot 4 inch per second or a 10 foot 7 inch per second for, for bigger water fishing like where I'm at. Get a variety of them. They're cheap. They can work on any line. Get a, a little assortment of different sink rates and different lengths and then find the sweet spot. But that's a quick way to turn your floating line into a sink tip line. It's not the best for casting. That's why I recommend that integrated sink tip first. If you're a serious fisherman, you want an advantage. Time is limited. You want to do it right. The integrated sink tip is without a doubt the best casting, best 
turning over setup for uh, weighted flies and streamers. But I like the idea of working my way downstream with syncing uh, kind of that mend, sink, swim presentation with swinging flies. I'll try to do a YouTube about it later in the month, but work your way downstream. Once you get to the bucket, if you're, if you're not having as much success as you want to have and you're not prepared to just hike to the next area, slow down, surgically approach that water, switch to an indicator rig with your strike indicator, sink a nymph or two, or switch up to your, your Euro nymphing rig. So indicator, Euro, doesn't matter, but you could pick that pool apart. In cold water, and uh, I'm going to wrap this up here in, in just a moment here, but uh, one of my concluders for this is going to be in cold water. If you're looking at this going, you know, I don't, maybe I want a Euro nymph. Maybe, maybe I haven't really gotten into that or I've, I've done it, but I haven't had a lot of success with it. There are some big advantages to suspending flies with a strike indicator. Um, especially if you, if you're fishing big, long, deep pools, like a big river, like that you've seen the Yakima probably in some of the YouTube stuff, the Instagram stuff that it's a big water, big river. Um, the strike indicator can help you reach out and cover some of those seams that are a little beyond the reach of a Euro or tight line rig. And especially in those bigger open spaces in the wintertime, if those fish are potted up in big open water, sometimes it can be hard to approach those fish and get within 20 or 30 feet of them, which would, you know, that'd be 30 would be a long ways for me to catch something on my Euro or my tight line rig. So, don't be afraid to, to use both indicators, use Euro, test it a little bit, but have a plan before you go out on how you're going to switch back and forth between using some streamer or some bugger type flies and your nymph game and get good at transitioning back and forth between those two and understanding why we might do that. Maybe it'll be a win factor. Maybe it'll be the fact that you you're you're now you're in the bucket, you're in the meat and potatoes of that holding lie, and now you need to slow down a little bit, and it might be good to surgically pick this thing apart with some very little nymphs, something that I can spend an extended amount of time in there and continue to prospect for fish, whereas with a larger streamer especially, you run that through the, the pool or the holding lie just a couple of times, they either ate it or they didn't eat it, you throwing it 25 more times at them really isn't going to help matters. But when we're working a very light line, small fly rig, it can become very advantageous to stay there for a while and work those, those little itty bitty flies. So hopefully this podcast was helpful for you guys uh, as you enter this cold water season. And we just appreciate you listening. Follow us on YouTube and Instagram. And it is, as always, shop at Red's. Leave a few comments uh, for me. And also, if you have Q&A for the next episode, uh, just email me that at joe at redsflyshop.com and I'll jump on it. Fish on.